Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Reed Cooley. Reed is located now in Mississippi, as he says. I'll remind our listeners, I am a licensed health insurance broker here in Kentucky. I'm actually licensed in Mississippi. Uh, Licensed in Florida, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, 14 states across the country. So if you have, I also have a cousin, Chris Kimisat, who's out in Colorado, who covers many other states too. So really, if you want to support the Kelly Patrick Show, uh, send me some health insurance referrals for anywhere in the country, individuals under the age of 65 who need help, Medicare eligible individuals, and also groups. I can help with any of those types of health insurance requests. Reed Cooley is what I would describe as a based libertarian who utilizes a strategy to... Uh, promote liberty in our country uh, by going through, in large part, the Republican Party. And there's some very serious cases that can be made for that, and I think he does a great job of doing so. So when you get down to talking to Reed about any of the details, you'll hear him in this episode. He refers to pretty much all former U.S. presidents as war criminals, okay? That's not so much of a Republican type thing to say. That's a libertarian type thing to say. But what Reed is trying to do is to make the Republican Party and the Republicans in our country more liberty-centric. So that's my description of Reed Cooley. I think he does as good of a job at that as anyone, and I really appreciate him coming on. If you are a fan of The Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by returning guest. We have Reed Cooley. Reed is a writer, publicist, and communications director for Sovereign Media. And his work is often 
uh, featured by Fox News, Washington Times, and the Independent Institute, courtesy of the Louisville Combat Academy Roadcaster Line. We have Reed. Reed, how are you today? I'm splendid, Kelly. How are you? I'm doing very well. You were telling me before we started recording, it sounds like you have moved away. Uh, A lot of people in the entertainment industry these days are moving to Austin, Texas. But you moved away recently from Austin, Texas. I know that's not exactly the purpose of the episode today, but it sounds kind of fascinating. What uh, uh, caused you to leave Austin? Well, uh, there were several factors. Uh, First and foremost, I would say that in order to enjoy Enjoy a freedom uh, to the utmost uh, and just general happiness. Um, I would recommend that you know all your conservative and libertarian uh, your listeners really consider getting out of the city. Um, I, I believe that you know self sufficiency is going to be key uh, to really you know succeeding, uh, thriving uh, in the present as well as in the future. Uh, so that was that was a big motivating factor for me. Um, so what I did was I I, I sat down uh, and I I calculated how much money it was going to cost to build. Uh, to build a small house uh, around you know, around 500 square feet, which is not very big at all, but at least it was something that I could call my own. I figured out that for for about 11 months worth of rent, I could actually build my own house uh, and really and just save a lot of money. Uh, you know, put a big nest egg back and just kind of prepare for the future. Uh, not not have to spend so much money on a mortgage, all that kind of stuff. So that's exactly what I did. I um, I grew up around carpentry enough to just understand you know, a lot of the basics of, of what it would take to kind of build a, you know, a small house. Uh, so that's what I did uh, last year, uh, 2022. I spent probably seven or eight months uh, just uh, building this, this small house uh, here in Jones County, Mississippi, more popularly known as the free state of Jones. Uh, it's in South Mississippi, about an hour north of the Gulf Coast. And I have to say, as far as, you know, being able to succeed in media, uh, is being able to to build a career or continue my career in publicity, any of those sorts of things. Being away from the city has not hurt me at all. Uh, anytime I need to get to a city for an important meeting, I can just catch a flight. I can I can you know drive. Uh, there's really nothing that bad. Or I can do uh, a simple Zoom call or a Google Meet call. I mean, we're a more interconnected world uh, these days than the world's ever been. So uh, just getting away from the city. Um, I guess you could say in part I did it because it was just something that made me happy. I mean, I grew up outside of the cities, um, you know, more and more rural kind of America. Uh, that's, that's really my upbringing. So uh, just being living inside of a city, you know, one person stacked on top of another, it really just wasn't my thing. Uh, and I also value self-sufficiency, uh, being able to step out my front door, uh, go hunting, you know, go playing, you know, uh, you know, on my farm or whatever else. So um, I would say, you know, to, to young listeners in particular, it's not that difficult. If you're willing to make sacrifices, there's really no reason at all that you should have to stay uh, living inside of a city that's just going to, you know, raise your property taxes, uh, make you absolutely miserable. And uh, before you know it, you'll wind up uh, on the wrong end of a court case uh, with a George Soros funded uh, prosecutor, which you don't want to be in. Uh, the risk of that is a lot lower if you live outside of the city. So that's kind of it uh, in a nutshell there, Kelly. Reed, you recently uh, published a piece for foxnews.com. I know many of our listeners, when it comes to politics, lean probably more to the right, uh, maybe in particular libertarian. But Fox News in particular, I would say, is known still as being somewhat of a corporate media 
you know, right. not the exact same as CNN or, or M- of course, MSNBC, anything like that. But right. but at least Fox News does have, uh, you know, it's got Tucker Carlson. And he, in my opinion, right. he brings a lot of, of value to the table, alternative, you know, anti even the military industrial complex at times. Um, I think it's Fox Business has Kennedy who features. Uh, oftentimes libertarian guests before we jump into your recent article what has your experience been with fox news well um you know i would say that you know again fox news they're obviously very corporate uh that's absolutely no secret but to equate them to their competitors at cnn msnbc so on and so forth i mean this is not even close um i would say that you know tucker carl and kennedy guests like that they're absolutely net positive look at what tucker carlson did, for example, uh, in exposing much of the January 6th tapes. I mean, I don't think anyone in their right mind, at least on the, on the right-hand side of politics, is going to say that that wasn't a huge net positive, uh, both for the country at large and for you know the January 6th uh, political prisoners. Uh, Kennedy also, I mean, she hosts a lot of great conservative and libertarian guests uh, on her show on Fox Business. Um, I absolutely love Kennedy. I've had the pleasure of getting to meet her uh, several times. Uh, her show is a lot of fun. Um, you know, my experience working with Fox really just goes down to my overall personal strategy, which is that, uh, you know, in every capacity that I've been, I have tried to get the message of liberty um, out to larger audiences. Uh, you know, so the next 20 million or the next 40 million American voters, you know, that's really, you know, my target demographic. Um, I, re- I have very little interest in reaching people with the message of liberty who are already firmly in my camp. Um, the, the demographic that I've always been primarily concerned with, with reaching, uh, the demographic that I get, I guess you could say that I specialize in, uh, in my life away from writing as a publicist, uh, is that of being able to reach the people who, for example, maybe, maybe voted for Donald Trump, uh, twice or maybe just one time. Um, just, you know, larger groups of conservative, uh, American voters who don't always have time to pay attention to the nitty gritty of politics like, like you and I do. These are just, you know, good, hardworking people who pay their taxes. You know, they want to put food on the table. They want to take care of their kids and send them to a good school, send them to a good college. Uh, reaching out to, to those people, to much bigger audiences, um, I would say that, you know, that's the kind of access that, that my work with Fox News has allowed me to do, uh, is take take a lot of my more libertarian uh, leanings and, and just and send them out uh, to a larger audience. It's an interesting topic, and I always default back to uh, mentioning conversations with my wife. She left Cuba in 2014, and any time I get a little too carried away with complaining about the United States, she is quick to remind me that oh, this, yeah. <laughs> this is still a great— It gets so much worse. Oh, my goodness, and, and really a good testament to that is you chose to leave Texas— and went to South Mississippi, and it sounds like things are going well for you. So I think you're right in that uh, about half of our country does not identify themselves as being Democrat or progressive or anything like that. And in large part, they uh, uh, have values that are probably similar to yours or to mine. They're family-oriented people. Maybe they're, they're, they're uh, uh, 
member of their local church. Uh, maybe, maybe not, but they're, they're uh, very, family is very important to them. They're, they're hardworking people and they do value freedom. So although they may not have the time, like you said, to devote to anarcho-libertarian thought or reading, you know, Mises or Rothbard or whatever it is, they do embody uh, a lot of the important parts of what it means to be free and to enjoy your life living as an American. Uh, yes, that's absolutely correct. And when it comes to, to marketing or messaging, uh, which is a role that, that I've had in several you know previous jobs, that there, there's really nothing meaningful beyond you know just trying to reach the next twenty, the next forty, maybe the next hundred million uh, American voters. Uh, you know, with our message, with something that's unapologetically bold, with something that's unapologetically uh, in favor of liberty. Um, you know, there's really nothing. Uh, there's nothing beyond that that's even worth pursuing. So, um, you know, for years now, you know, that's been my goal is, you know, keep your eye on the prize as the prize is everyday moms and pops, uh, you know, blue collar folks who just want to, you know, put food on the table, take care of their kids, take care of their families. Uh, and so, you know, that was really my decision. Um, that, that's really why I decided to, to send my research uh, on California's reparations plan uh, to Fox News. So that's why, you know, they were kind of my first choice for the outlet that I would like to publish it is once again, you know, just because they have uh, access to, to that kind of audience. The title of the article is Radical California Leftists Want This Reparations Lunacy to Be a Blueprint for America. For any of our listeners who are not familiar with what's going on, have not read your article, read what can you tell us about this? Well, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, really, the reason that I decided to laser in on California's uh, reparations plan is because this is a project that's been in the works for almost three years. It's actually approaching a July deadline, um, and it, it really hasn't received that much media coverage. It hasn't received that much scrutiny, um, and I felt like that was a bit odd. I really felt like there was, there was criticism uh, and you know, overall scrutiny that was very much needed. Uh, whenever it came to this reparations plan. And so just to give your audience uh, a little bit of a background about this and what I think makes it different than other previous pushes uh, for reparations is that uh, so four months after uh, the death of George Floyd uh, in May uh, 2020, uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, uh, signed into law a bill um, setting aside provisions for a so-called reparations task force in California. Uh, that would spend the next two years uh, conducting research and making a series of policy recommendations uh, about uh, about how the state of California should enact uh, a sort of reparations package uh, for for Black Californians who are descendants uh, of slaves. Um, whenever this was first announced back in September 2020, uh, it got a lot of coverage back then, um, mostly from state and local media, although there were some national headlines about it as well. And at different points uh, since September of 2020, it's gotten a lot of, of scrutiny um, here and there, very intermittently, not consistent at all. Um, so I decided to, to go out on a limb, uh, do a little bit of research, update readers about you know what the most recent developments are, and most importantly, to warn readers that this is not this is not a plan uh, in California that uh, that the people of the other 49 states have the luxury of ignoring. This very much has a national implications. Um, you know, in, in a few different ways, uh, however you divide it. Uh, but, um, yeah, so that's why I chose to, to write about, you know, this reparations package, um, you, you know, that, uh, and it's still not fleshed out. There are still, there's still research happening, uh, among, you know, the California reparations task force. There's still, 
you know, doing different kinds of historical research uh, and preparing to make their recommendations to the governor of California about what the state of California should do in order to allegedly, you know, make amends for, for past racial injustices. Uh, once again, uh, the deadline for that uh, is in July. But this is uh, th- this is this is a pretty disastrous bill. I mean, I don't think that this is a, a real attempt at resolving any sort of racial uh, injustice. The, the more research that I did into this, uh, the more abundantly clear it became that this is really just another communist wealth redistribution scheme, uh, and that the authors of this plan, the architects of this plan, have every intention of of seeing it happen in all 50 states, of federalizing it, uh, if you will. Uh, So one of the more difficult parts of this research was figuring out the dollar amount that was to be, that that maybe we could expect the state of California to to, to be doling out, you know, to individual uh, beneficiaries of this plan because it's changed so many times. Um, Long story short, it has now approached $5 million. Now, now that the proponents of this reparations plan um, are saying that they think that $5 million for each eligible resident, um, meaning, you know, a black Californian who can demonstrate, you know, that they are a descendant uh, of a slave, $5 million. Um, This has overall, this plan has approached over $800 billion. And keep in mind, the state of California is $777 billion in debt already. That's more than three quarters of a trillion dollars in debt. Um, and so just from a financial perspective alone, I mean, this plan is absolutely ludicrous. Uh, but whenever you get into the details of what this plan might entail, it gets it, it gets a lot worse. So um, aside from just individual like $5 million payments made from the state of California to individual beneficiaries of this plan, uh, this task force, this, this reparations task force that, like I said, was built by Governor Gavin Newsom and was created for the intention of making recommendations to the state about how the state should assign reparations. This task force is already recommending 10 new government offices within the state government of California to oversee the administration of reparations. This includes an office of Freedmen Affairs, uh, which, according to the proponents of this plan, would be designed to help people file claims for compensation. Um, in addition to that, we're talking about an Office of Freedmen Genealogy, uh, which would be uh, created with the sole purpose, at the expense of the California taxpayer, would be created with the sole purpose of helping people prove their eligibility uh, for reparations. On top of all that, we're talking about um, free tuition for, for black California students in private K-12 through schools and those pursuing higher education in the state. So just one component of this reparations package includes free K through 12 for, for black Californians, uh, all free K through 12 and free college. Not free, of course. It's done at the expense of the California taxpayer. So this goes so far beyond, you know, just individual, you know, paychecks uh, being given to eligible residents. I mean, we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, free kindergarten through college, we're talking about 10 new government offices. On top of that, the task force has also proposed raising the minimum wage in California, uh, requiring health benefits and paid time off and other workplace protections uh, for industries where allegedly there are high numbers of African-Americans working. So you're talking about just really uh, a, a sort of California, a really race-based New Deal program uh, that's being, you know, 
that's being considered here in California and that may, that may very well end up passing. Uh, so it's not something that we have the luxury of ignoring uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because like I said, the state of California is already in so much debt. Uh, another $800 billion doesn't look like something they might be able to afford. And what is California going to do whenever they finally run themselves into debt? They're going to appeal to the federal government to bail them out, which in the, if that happens, that would mean that what this entire reparations plan constitutes is an attempt on part of Democrats in California to steal from taxpayers in red states in order to buy votes in their own state. That's just one way in which this could have national repercussions. Another way would be for the architects of this plan to have their dreams come true and the federal government actually federalized this. So Kamala Moore, she's the chair of the reparations task force. She is a scholar on, I kid you not, Kelly, reparatory justice, reparatory justice. That's not a thing. I swear liberals love to just find any adjective they can and put it before the word justice and claim that it's actually a real thing that has to be sought. But Kamala Moore, this uh, scholar on so-called reparatory justice, uh, has already intent, you know, expressed her intentions to be as, quote, radical as possible in determining which Californians will be eligible for aid and how much money they are to receive. On top of that, she has made it very clear that she intends for this plan, for California's plan, to just be a blueprint and for this to become federalized uh, so that all 50 states have no choice but to adopt it. Uh, so this isn't something that we have the luxury of ignoring. Um, as much as we would like to just say, oh, this is another one of California's stupid plans, let California ruin themselves. I mean, if this does end up passing, it has federal it has federal implications because there's the possibility that other states, even blue states, could adopt it. Um, there's the possibility that you could see a bailout happen where the federal government just steals money from red states who manage their budgets responsibly, who didn't adopt stupid policy plans like this, and gives those tax dollars to California, um, essentially just bailing out stupid state Democrats in the golden state. Uh, there are a number of ways in which this, this could have a federal repercussion. So the reason I chose to write about it was just because it's something that, that needed a lot more scrutiny. It needed more criticism. Uh, I think that, you know, we, we live in such a stressful time. Uh, there are so many awful things happening in the world that the news can feel like a, a big drag on people. Always something negative happening, happening. Always some end of the world sort of scenario that seems to be around the corner. But this was this was something that was absolutely worth uh, putting in front of people's attention, uh, despite of all of that. When discussing the topic of reparations or to be honest, any sensitive issue that involves really African-Americans, of course, uh, that can be a, a very polarizing topic. And a, I can imagine you get some negative feedback. Um, does that lead to you shying away from covering this type of a topic? Have you had any negative feedback? Um, uh, is it important to not be scared away from these types of topics, and if so, why? Uh, it is absolutely important you know, that we address uh, difficult issues like this. I don't know that I buy the point that this is too polarizing of a topic to touch because how much more polarized could our country get? I mean, our country is really polarized right now. I really think that the only way that we come back from that, that we get to a, a less polarized country, is by talking candidly, by talking honestly, by talking openly uh, about uh, difficult issues such as this. And whenever you're talking about this 
California Reparations Task Force, you're not talking about people with good intentions. You're talking about people who want to exploit racial tension, who want to exploit racial guilt in America in order to bring about a vast communist-style wealth redistribution scheme that they ha- they are very open. They do not want to see limited to California. They want to see every state, especially red states, red southern states in particular, like my own, um, they want to see them pay for this. Now, I mean, let's keep in mind, California, to its own detriment, has embodied progressive principles perhaps more than any other state in this country. And, you know, these reparationists in the state of California, they, they expect California to essentially bankrupt itself in order to make amends for, for past racial injustices. And keep in mind, whenever California was admitted to the Union in 1850, it was technically a free state. Um, so if they expect California to basically self-immolate itself, to bankrupt itself, um, you know, to make amends for, for whatever past racial injustices are there, then, then, I mean, how steep a price do they expect, for example, the red states to pay, in particular, you know, the red southern states? Um, to your question about uh, negative feedback or criticism I've gotten, it's been very minimal. Um, I haven't come under any serious attacks uh, for this op-ed yet, um, you know, for, for this particular bit of research, I was expecting, I was fully expecting, uh, you know, the night before it came out that you know, me being just a, a Southern conservative white male writing about a topic like reparations over in California, when I'm living in Mississippi, that you know, they, it was going to be intense. I guess there's still room for that to happen. Uh, but, you know, complaints about it have been really minimal. Um, I've gotten an outpouring of support. Uh, from a lot of good people uh, since I wrote it. Um, a lot of people I didn't expect to to retweet the article, for example, uh, on Twitter. Uh, they retweeted it. You know, that kind of, you know, some of those instances uh, took me by surprise. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, as far as negative feedback thus far, not really. Uh, to my understanding, you know, this particular op-ed has reached a little over 50 million people, um, and I haven't come under any serious attacks. I guess maybe I'm just lucky. I don't know, but uh, I think that, Whenever it comes to difficult issues like this, we have to be willing to talk candidly. And whenever people in power, even if it's people in power in a far distant state like California, have a bad conscience, whenever they're trying to exploit racial tension, whenever they're trying to sow racial unrest, which is just something that I wish our country could move past, we need to call them out for it. We need to criticize them for it. Whenever they have bad intentions, we need to, to, to laser in on them and, and let them know, no, they're not going to get away with it. They're not going to do it without criticism uh, you know, f- f- from, f- from decent, hardworking people. It's just not going to happen. So um, you know, this, this sounds cheesy, but whenever you follow truth, whenever you follow uh, what's good uh, in the world, um, you know, you, you, in the long run, you end up uh, finding a lot more, uh, a lot more wisdom. Uh, and a lot more satisfaction than if you had cowered, uh, you know, f- from the opportunity uh, at all. So I was pretty driven, uh, you know, to, to publish this piece, um, you know, despite any criticism that I thought would come my way. Um, and uh, I still have that that attitude. Uh, even, I mean, the most difficult issues in particular are ones that, that we should be willing to talk about. Agreed. Uh, just a few years ago during the protests or riots, the Summer of Love in 2020 here in Louisville, Kentucky. I remember on my social media, 
um, I had shared a tweet. I think it was from 2018 or 16, whenever Fidel Castro passed away. And the official Black Lives Matter Twitter account had tweeted out something like rest in power king to honor Fidel Castro. And so during the summer of love, I shared a screenshot of that onto my personal Facebook. And I wrote a little explanation of why I feel the Black Lives Matter organization is entirely bad for our country. They are dangerous, they are violent, and they do not have the best interests in mind for African Americans. And so I put it out there. I'm a white heterosexual male. Same thing you said. I mean, I, I was expecting tons of negative feedback. I got a little bit of pushback, but I was really surprised by even some of my African American friends I see at the boxing gym. I had one guy in particular uh, approach me and say, man, I didn't know that about Black Lives Matter. And then he had looked into it a little bit. So I think as long as you're now, there's going to be exceptions. Okay. Obviously there's right. going to be exceptions and you're, nobody's, um, there's probably someone out there who says, Oh, Kelly Patrick's a racist. I don't hear it. I really don't. But, uh, I think as long as you're coming from a good spot and you're not actually like a white supremacist or something crazy like that. Right. That's not actually you. I think for the most part, as long as you choose your words correctly, it's well received. As long as you do, like I said, you treat everyone with respect and you have, really, you have a backbone. You have a backbone. You're standing for right. something. You don't look like a coward and you're articulating a message, which I think you did very well in this article uh, about what's going on with the reparations in California. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate that. It, it took about uh, two straight days, really not that long of a period of time, uh, for crafting an op-ed that was as research-intensive uh, as this one was. But I'll tell you, whenever I, I sort of scratched the surface of the story here, uh, I, I just started discovering so much about this task force. So uh, we could even we could set aside the reparations plan itself and just zoom in on the architects of the plan and what some of their backgrounds are. And it's just it's crazy. There's no way. You, you could look at some of the people who are crafting this plan for reparations and come away with the feeling that these are good, honest people with the best intentions at heart. So take into account, for example, Reverend Amos Brown. So I talked about the chair of the task force earlier, Kamala Moore, but the vice chair of the of California's reparations task force has been Kamala Harris's pastor since the 1990s. Okay. Uh, Kamala Harris's pastor and it was kind of hilarious that in the last week of March, this man got himself into a lot of trouble because he skipped a reparations hearing to fly to West Africa with Kamala Harris uh, and go on a bunch of parties with actors like, I'm not joking, like Idris Elba, uh, Rosario Dawson, and Spike Lee. There were some, there was, there's basically a tour happening uh, where several Democratic you know, representatives from the United States. Uh, are going from from one West African country to another, and they're partying with celebrities and heads of state from other parts of the world. Um, and Reverend Amos Brown, he actually missed one of his own reparations hearings to, you know, to to do this. Now, I personally am not against him missing one of his own hearings if he wants to to make a if he wants to screw up that badly, uh, let him. But his own followers, his own constituents, um, they, they, they've turned against him. Like you know, they're angry with him because he was skipping out. Uh, what they felt like his responsibility to the people of California so that he could go party with Kamala Harris. So it was very interesting to see that there were there were Democratic voters in California 
who were turning on Amos Brown and Kamala Harris and sort of seeing them as sort of a, a democratic elite that were out of touch with the constituents in their own state. That was a, that was an interesting bit of insight uh, that I saw there. Um, there was another thing that, that really caught my attention, and it was the background of a lady named Lisa Holder. So Lisa Holder, she was appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom himself uh, to this nine-person reparations task force. Now, Lisa Holder, she's a trial attorney by profession. That's what she does whenever she's not working uh, on this task force. But she's also an awardee of, I kid you not, the Soros Justice Fellowship from an organization called, it's really a series of organizations, called the Open Society Foundations, which is a project founded by, you guessed it, the billionaire mega donor George Soros himself. I have to say that when it comes to criticism, there was maybe a little bit of hesitation in, in just even alluding to George Soros because there, there's a really intense uh, knee-jerk reaction among many people to call any conservative who attacks George Soros like an anti-Semite or something. Um, you know, So there, there was maybe a little bit of hesitation there, but I mean, it still tells us quite a bit uh, that uh, that you know this that Lisa Holder, you know, one of Governor Newsom's five appointees to this task force, um, actually awarded was actually awarded a scholarship by George Soros himself. So moving on to a couple of other uh, members of the task force, there's a lady named Monica Montgomery Step. Uh, so Monica Montgomery Step, um, she's she, she's a member of the San Diego City Council. So she's one of the members of the task force who actually serves in an elected position away from her work with the task force. Um, last year, in August to be exact, she sent an op-ed to the San Diego Union Tribune, which is San Diego's uh, main newspaper, openly espousing her 50 state aspirations for, for the new reparations, for this new reparations agenda that's coming out. Now, what's more important about Monica Montgomery's step um, whenever it comes to this reparations bill, is not necessarily her work with the reparations plan, but some of the work that she's done on the San Diego City Council in the past. So Monica Montgomery Step is she, she's opposed to something called California Proposition 209. Uh, California Proposition 209, that was a bill that was signed into law in California in 1996, to be exact, by then Republican Governor uh, Pete Wilson. It was, um, it was really an application of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to the state of California. That, that's really all it was. Uh, this, was this was just a, a legislative, a statewide legislative translation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to, to the state of California. Well, Monica Montgomery Stepp actually opposes uh, this bill because, um, because throughout, throughout the state of California, she says not enough public contracts have been awarded from the state of California to minority and women-owned businesses. So this woman has actually tried to repeal California Proposition 209, an action which, if it were actually followed through with, would, would allow the state government to give preferential treatment to small businesses that are owned by women and minorities. Uh, so that that was that was just insightful to me. That that indicated to me that once again we're operating, we have a person operating with a bad conscience. This isn't a person who wants to come to the table and have a real discussion on what, if anything, should be done to amend past racial injustices. This is a person with operating on Marxist tendencies who wants to basically, who sees America through some sort of racialized hierarchy where white males and whatever on top 
Uh, and she she just wants to, to invert that hierarchy. She wants to invert that pyramid. Now, that's what it really seemed like to me. Um, with, with Kel, I mean, why else would you want to give preferential treatment to to people of a certain sex or people of a certain race? That's, that's completely against you know, what America has become uh, since the civil rights movement. So, like I said, that was just one bit of interesting research that I found as I was you know, digging deeper and deeper uh, into what was going on here. Reed, you said your strategy is to reach out to many, maybe individuals who lean more to the right. Of course, your average, maybe Fox News reader and to try to uh, spread some liberty centric uh, messaging, and I think you do a great job of that. If someone's listening and they hear that you said that they have almost a Marxist uh, ideology, the people who are trying to pass this legislation in California, I mean, for the record, I would say most or many of those people probably would not even deny that they right. have Marxist ideology. But could you educate our listeners? Why is Marxist ideology a bad thing? Why is that a bad thing? They're trying to help the underprivileged. Uh, the African-Americans, why, Reed, is that a bad thing? Um, absolutely. So Marxism is not about uh, is not about bringing you about a more level playing field or anything of that. It's about overturning one social order and replacing it with a new kind of social order or a new kind of hierarchy. And in order for Marxism to take root uh, in any country, in any culture, it has to advance something that, that Karl Marx himself called class consciousness. So this is where you use propaganda, you use whatever institutions you can of influence in order to convince the individual person within that country, within that culture, wherever it is, that they that they are not really an individual, that they are a person who fits along a stratum, that they fit that they that they fit at a certain place in a pyramid, that they have a certain ranking in their society, whether they like it or not, that that ranking that they have is unjust, that the people at the top uh, of this, you know, imaginary pyramid got there because of privilege, got there because of, you know, be because they were born into the right race or the right sex, so on and so forth. Uh, so that's what we're talking about here. Whenever it comes to Marxism in the United States, class consciousness, as it was applied to the European countries, didn't quite take off with the same level of success because in America, we admire rich people. We admire success. We, we admire uh, people who are able to to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps and climb climb the social ladder, right? And maybe even achieve achieve success and wealth for themselves. It's uh, something we commonly call the American dream. Um, we don't really have the same level of class envy, at least not along strictly economic lines in the United States, that countries across Europe have historically had. Instead, what the Marxists began to figure out in the 20th century was that if you want to divide people in the United States, along some sort of arbitrary line and ultimately pit them against each other, you don't do it by exploiting their social class. You do it by exploiting race, which is really, I mean, America's Achilles heel. Um, it always has been. And the Marxists really understand this, but it's not just race. It's also sex, right? I mean, women weren't given the right to vote, for example, until the 19th Amendment. And since then, Marxists uh, in places of academia in particular, but in, in, in the multimedia and Hollywood and government, they've begun manufacturing all these different axes along which they can divide the American people, you know, sexual orientation and blah, 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 so on and so on and so forth. All these, you know, are immigrant versus uh, native, 
so on and so forth, right? So all of these are just different are applications of Marx's original idea of class consciousness to the United States, which is a very, um, a very still, unfortunately, a very racially divided country due in large part to the work of the Marxists who are constantly trying to set us against one another uh, along these lines. You know, to, to Marxism, chaos is a ladder, right? You know, just to borrow a, a quick little, you know, a saying from, from George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones series, if, if anybody else here is a fantasy nerd like me. So the Marxists, they figured out in the 20th century that if you want to pit Americans against each, against each other, you can't do it with the same systems, with the same strategies that were done across Europe, across Asia in the 20th century. You have to exploit, above all, race. Second to race is sex. After that, you have all these other axes, like like I mentioned a minute ago, sexual orientation, so on and so forth, right? Uh, so that's what we're talking about here. Uh, when we talk about the architects, or at least some of the architects of, of California's reparations task force, they're operating on Marxist premises about who the winners are and who the losers are um, in America historically, like who the, who, the, who the proletariat are and who the bourgeoisie are, the bourgeoisie being the sort of privileged upper class that has to be overthrown uh, by any means necessary, and the proletariat, you know, the, the good, honest, hardworking people at the bottom who have been exploited by this, you know, so-called bourgeoisie, right? It's very clear. Um, the pro, the pro, sorry, the bourgeoisie to this modern American form of race Marxism, the bourgeoisie, that's your, your average, uh, white person in particular, your white male, your conservative white male, even more than that, um, you know, who has everything according to their narratives handed to him uh, on a silver platter. And, you know, the more intersections that you get below that, you know, such as, you know, woman or woman of color or a gay woman of color or trans woman of color, the further down you go on this pyramid or the further down to the pyramid, they will try to convince you that you are in order to make you angry and, and make you rebel against a neighbor that you otherwise wouldn't have anything against. Um, whenever it comes to, to, to fighting this, other than the calling it out and exposing it, I think it is really vital that people just get out and meet their neighbors. Uh, get out, shake their neighbor's hand, talk to them for a minute, and just understand that, you know, whenever you get outside, you talk to your neighbor, um, things aren't as bad as the media would have you believe. Things aren't as bad as as the Marxists what would have us believe that they are. Um, I think that I think that's really important is just, you know, get outside, get a dose of reality, get away from the headlines a little bit, uh, get away from from all the divisiveness and just understand that, you know, um, the, the sort of racial division that we have in this country, unfortunately, this is not a natural occurrence. This is something that's artificially generated by people who are power seeking. They're people who are power hungry and who see once again uh, chaos is a ladder. So I think, you know, that really applies to the California Reparations Task Force. Uh, these are not people who are who are really trying to amend any sort of, you know, past racial injustices in an honest way. These are people who are trying to to steal vast amounts of, of wealth and capital and, and happiness uh, from, from people they dislike along racial lines or along gender lines or whatever else. Steal as much as they can from them and give to their own constituents, give to people uh, who they feel are in their own tribe or whatever. You touched on quite a few different, very important points there, Reed, but um, calling 
people out for what they are and being clear up front, I think is very important. The Black Lives Matter example I gave earlier, uh, many times with one of my friends in particular, who's very progressive, I said to him, you know, that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization and they support, you know, uh, authoritarian regimes across the world. They have for a long time. And he would say, no, no, they don't. That's not true. And I would say, okay, well, here's a video of the founders of Black Lives Matters describing themselves right. as mar- trained Marxists. And then there's yeah, this- we, are tra- yeah, they say we are trained Marxists or they would identify as Leninists. I mean, they're very open about their plans and about what they are. Yes. And, and that goes for the people, I'm sure, without even knowing the details that I'm sure you know about these people in California read. But I'm sure these same people are reading the same books. They're being educated uh, along the same path and they believe in the same things as the people who did found Black Lives Matter. You referenced the uh, bourgeoisie and the proletariat. So, of course, Marxist type terminology. What's very dangerous there is historically, and I know you know this, Reed, but historically and Per the Marxist uh, uh, writings, what emerges is called a dictatorship of the proletarian. So it's the people right. who come up, and they even use the, the word dictatorship, and the, the people then rule over uh, everyone in the country or, or the state, whatever it is. The, busy, the biggest example of that would be, I guess, the USSR, but I, I think it's very important to pinpoint, right. and for hopefully people who are listening to this episode who not only lean politically to the right, but also who lean to the left. I hope you're listening too and and you're able to connect the dots that this type of um, action, I mean, in North Korea right now, they hold you accountable and they they were founded on Marxist principles also. They hold you accountable for if your great, great uncle tried to escape Korea, you are still punished to this day. So generational guilt is a very Marxist, uh, uh, centric uh, theme, and that's not that far off from Reed. You should feel guilty because actually, we don't even know if your ancestors did your ancestors own slaves. Do you know? I, I don't believe so. Yeah, I don't either. I don't think I, they really mine did. I, they may have though. Regardless, that has nothing to do with me. I do not approve of that. I didn't sign off on that. And the, the notion that I should be held accountable for anything that someone has done other than myself. It's just very dangerous, and I uh, do appreciate you highlighting that through this article. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was, it was a pleasure writing it. Is the dictatorship of the proletariat, is that something that you, you feel is uh, emerging uh, in, let's say, just California? Haven't they talked about succession in California, like they're going to break off from the rest of the country and, and, and rule over themselves? Well, uh, in 2019, uh, there were rumblings of a sort of a secession plan. I believe that what you're talking about, the dictatorship of the proletariat, um, it can be identified by a separate term that I've heard in, for now, exclusively right-wing circles, but I think is going to gain more popularity, and that term is anarcho-tyranny. So if any of your followers, for example, follow uh, Michael Malas or Pete Quinones or Aaron McIntyre, for example, uh, you might hear the term uh, anarcho-tyranny referenced a bit more. This is really a situation in which the state or the regime's uh, preferred actors, its preferred constituents, get preferential treatment to do whatever they want in terms of rioting or other forms of violent political activity, while the enemies of the regime, ideological or otherwise, are severely punished. 
So we've seen quite a bit of this. Um, thank you for alluding to 2020, like the George Floyd riots, for example. I really believe that that was the introduction of anarcho-tyranny or what we might synonymously call uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat in this country. So, I mean, I'm sure your audience remembers very well that entire cities were getting sacked. St. John's Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., which is where the majority of, of American presidents have attended church, including our founding fathers, what was set on fire, um, all sorts of violence happening across this country. It was a very dramatic time uh, in American history. They're given a free pass. It was fiery, but mostly peaceful. I mean, we could go on and on about all the different things that were done to private property, you know, windows being smashed out of Starbucks's, uh, buildings being vandalized, churches being set on fire. What's happening? What, what was happening while that was taking place? We saw churches being shut down. We saw people being locked in their houses. We saw people having their jobs taken away. All sorts of things happening to the population at large. But the one exception was made for, for, the, for the regime's preferred agents, for the Black Lives Matter activists, for Antifa, for people whom the people in power actually favored during that time. So what you call anarcho-tyranny, what seems like a void, uh, a void of real consequences, a void of a real social order, actually becomes very tyrannical in nature because mobs that are, that are, that are preferred by the regime, by the state, are given free license to, to terrorize everyone else, basically however they want, right? Um, so I think that we're 2020, as generic as it might be to say that, it might not have been the beginning of the sort of dictatorship of the proletariat really beginning to take shape in America, like I said, what we might call anarcho-tyranny, uh, but it, it certainly marked uh, an important point uh, in the rise of Marxism in the United States. And I don't believe that anybody uh, would disagree with that. I think that even Marxists would agree, yeah, that was a, a tremendous opportunity for them to get closer uh, to the sort of social order uh, that they want. Um, I think that, you know, the beginning of the dictatorship of the proletariat, there are probably several different historical instances uh, you could point to uh, as to when that started. But I think that 2020 might be the most important date as far as whenever that really started to take shape, um, 2020 and the aftermath um, of George Floyd and, of course, the, the civil unrest stemming from the lockdowns might have very well given birth uh, to exactly what you're talking about there, Kelly. Reed, I appreciate you coming on the show. Before we wrap things up, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. Are you okay on time? Yeah, I can keep going. Okay. Um, so general talk and shop when it comes to politics. Who do you think will be the... Republican candidate for president <laughs> in 2024? Will it be DeSantis or will it be Trump? Uh, it's going to be Donald Trump. Um, I don't think that uh, people need to underestimate uh, Donald Trump. His entire career, he has been underestimated. And I don't just mean his political career. I mean his business career going all the way back to the early days in the 1970s where Donald and his father uh, we're trying to break into the real estate market there in New York City as outsiders. I think that uh, people have underestimated Trump all the way throughout his entire career, and he's had this recurring and somewhat annoying tendency uh, to beat the odds. Um, I'll tell you, whenever Donald Trump first came on the political scene in a serious way in 2015, I, I doubted his ability to make it that far. I said, oh, look at this clown, this jackass. He's... Uh, 
He's, he's making a fool of himself. And a few months into that, I came to regret those words. Um, I think that your nominee is going to be Donald Trump. And I think that the Democrats are betting that they can beat him pretty easily. Uh, they feel that uh, they can they can beat him at the ballot box uh, just as they did in uh, in 2020. Whether or not they won by legitimate means is probably a different question to be had altogether. Um, maybe not a can of worms we want to open, but uh, I think the Democrats are betting that Donald Trump getting the Republican nomination is a dream come true for them. Uh, so I believe that it's going to be Donald Trump. I believe that Ron DeSantis is going to have a time um, in the future, I don't know that it's quite right now, despite all of the great things that he's doing in Florida. Um, I think that your nominee is going to be Donald Trump. Any prediction for who his vice presidential candidate would be? Um, not Mike Pence. Uh, at this rate, I, I very seriously doubt that, <laughs> that Trump is going to uh, pick Mike Pence. Um, I couldn't tell you. Uh, what I will say is that if you would have told me in early 2015 you know, much less that Donald Trump would be the nominee, that Mike Pence, the governor of Indiana, would be his his running mate. I mean, I would have said, really, Mike Pence? Uh, I would have, you know, I wouldn't, I would have been a little surprised. I would have been a little surprised at that point. Uh, when it comes to a running mate, I think that uh, there's still a lot of time for a lot to happen. Um, that's one of the more difficult predictions to make when it comes to presidential politics. It's one of the predictions that I get wrong. Uh, a little more consistently than others. Um, what I will say is that don't expect Trump to be don't ex, don't expect him to let his guard down enough to put a, a very savvy person as his running mate. I mean, there's a reason why, for example, George H. W. Bush picked Dan Quayle uh, as his running mate. You know, back in back in the late '80s, and that was because Dan Quayle was a person that nobody uh, saw becoming president, wanted to become president. This was a guy who embarrassed himself by misspelling the word potato on a chalkboard in front of a bunch of fifth graders. And these little elementary school kids had to correct him. So um, I wouldn't expect Trump to pick anybody who could potentially threaten his presidency if they were to become the vice president. Um, I do think that Barack Obama picked Joe Biden for very similar strategic reasons, because at the time, nobody wanted to see Obama leave office uh, before his term was over because nobody wanted to see Joe Biden become president. Turns out, fast forward, we got that anyway. But at the time that Barack Obama was president, uh, nobody, not even many Democrats, wanted to see Joe Biden uh, become president. So don't expect uh, Trump to pick anyone, like I said, who could threaten his presidency. Look for a dark horse. Look for somebody who maybe doesn't have that much name recognition, at least not yet. I wouldn't expect it to be Nikki Haley, for example. Um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, that would surprise me and it would give me questions about Trump's strategic acumen if he picked Nikki Haley, uh, to be his running mate. So look for, look at somebody who's maybe not that popular yet. Um, you know, that's, that's right. Not necessarily the, 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 the field that we have of open and potential candidates, but, but look, look beyond that. I think that's, that's where you might find Trump's next running mate. And on the Democratic side, um, there have been some rumblings. Or I think he announced, and I'm sure he's not going to win, but Robert Kennedy Jr. said he's going to try to contend with Biden for the, the Democratic uh, nominee for, for president. Do you see anything coming from that? And beyond that, who do you think will run as the Democratic candidate? Will it be Biden? Who will it be? 
Well, that depends on what you mean by what do I see coming from it. Uh, so when it comes to an RFK junior candidacy, I think that that could be a very interesting moment for that could be a very interesting moment on foreign policy, on COVID tyranny, um, because Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and let's say he is a candidate challenging Joe Biden and he does get on the debate stage, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to say some radical things uh, on COVID tyranny, on the vaccine, on foreign policy, which for the most part are issues that he seems to be somewhat good on. Um, I think you could see a very interesting shift in the shift in the public conversation, maybe an opening of the of the Overton window uh, by just some of the things that Robert F. Kennedy would say with the platform that would be afforded to him uh, by by challenging Joe Biden uh, in the Democratic primary, which he's already announced that he's doing, I believe. Um, we all know that he's going to run. Um, I'm just not really certain if he's made the official announcement yet. I actually believe he's going to be making that in New York State, uh, maybe at some point within the next several days. Um, I think that Tulsi Gabbard is an interesting person to watch. Uh, I don't expect her to do anything at this rate. There's no way she can gain any traction uh, with Democratic voters. Uh, she, she's really gone way too far. She's crossed the Rubicon. Uh, she's She would be seen as a traitor and an unserious candidate to Democratic voters anywhere. I know that she said that she ditched the Democratic Party, but something tells me that with her views on minimum wage, on uh, universal health care, she would she would probably consider running as a Democrat if she were to run again. And don't forget about Mary Ann Williamson, uh, the, 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 the crystal lady uh, who talked about how America has a dark psychic force. She is running again on the Democratic ticket. Uh, that'll be hilarious as always. But whenever it comes to the Democratic nomination, I mean, don't be surprised if it's actually if it winds up just being Joe Biden again. Um, you know, even though he's senile, he's demented, he's not there. Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't even consider him. I wouldn't even compare him to my crazy uncle. Uh, I think that'd be an insult to my crazy uncle. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, despite so many predictions, despite so much speculation, we get a really boring outcome. And the Democratic nominee is Joe Biden again. And we wind up with a second head-to-head match of Biden versus Trump. Reed, I'm here in Kentucky. I'm wearing my Rand Paul T-shirt right now. <laughs> I'm a fan of Rand Paul. He's, of course, Good. probably my, my favorite member of the Senate. Uh, my favorite member of the right. Congress is probably Thomas Massey. Massey has recently come out and he supported McCarthy, which I found to be interesting. And now he's supporting DeSantis, despite what I assume would be substantial foreign policy differences between those two. Now, I know right. Trump called Massey, what was it, a, a second-rate? A, a second-rate, no, third-rate grandstander. Yes. And uh, Thomas Massey responded, I'm at least second-rate. Yes. So, um, <laughs> why yeah, why Trump, is Massey supporting, supporting DeSantis, in your opinion? Why did he support McCarthy and now DeSantis? I, I, don't, I couldn't tell you why he supported McCarthy. That was, that was an interesting development to me. I think that if anything, Thomas Massey saw the writing on the wall. Uh, he saw that you know this uh, that, that the nomination for Speaker of the House was going to be Kevin McCarthy. Uh, so uh, I think he, he saw the writing on the wall. He saw that it was kind of a futile, uh, you know, stunt, uh, maybe politically, strategically, whatever. Um, as far as why he's supporting DeSantis, I think a lot of that can go right back to uh, his opposition to Trump. Uh, or at least maybe not opposition to Trump. Thomas Massey is not a never-Trumper by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, But uh, just given the the vast differences between between, Trump's uh, response to COVID 
And what Thomas Massey was warning against, for example, you know, the CARES Act. You know, Thomas Massey was the only member of the House of Representatives, you know, to stand against that, said that he didn't want his republic to die in an empty chamber. Um, so I think that whenever it comes to Thomas Massey and his support for DeSantis, a lot of that can simply be chalked up to to his opposition to Trump um, or his differences with Trump, rather. Um, I don't think there, it takes a whole lot of mental gymnastics to really figure that one out. Now, that doesn't answer the full question, though, does it? Because you asked why DeSantis. Now, there are other candidates, hypothetically, that Thomas Massey uh, could support without supporting Trump. For example, like Nikki Haley or Vivek Ramaswamy, for example. Um, I think what it comes down to is that Ron DeSantis has been pretty solid on things like DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, social, emotional governance. Uh, like So really, really fighting the sort of tyranny that we're seeing from the corporate world, from companies like BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street, for example. And we also have to remember that before Ron DeSantis was governor of Florida, he was a member of the House of Representatives, which means he would have been a colleague of Thomas Massey. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if maybe there's just some sort of legislative history that gave birth to a, a level of trust between Thomas Massey and Ron DeSantis. Um, and maybe that's ultimately why Massey chose to go to DeSantis, because he knows he maybe he just knows him on a level deeper uh, than he knows some of the other uh, Republican candidates. So it's not really a development that surprises me. A lot of libertarian-leaning folks are throwing in their lot with DeSantis uh, right now, uh, despite some differences between uh, the libertarian position on foreign policy and Ron DeSantis' uh, voting history on foreign policy uh, from Congress. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I would say uh, it's not a surprising development. Uh, I expect Thomas Massey to throw in his, his lot with Trump once Trump has secured the GOP nomination. But in the meantime, Thomas Massey supporting DeSantis, it, it shouldn't be a surprising development. Reed, while I have you on the line, there's just different stuff that pops into my head. So if you're okay with it, I'll keep throwing a couple things at you. Is that okay? Yeah, I can keep going. All right. So uh, Jack Teixeira is the name of a guy who is being sought after, uh, 21-year-old um, Air National Guardsman for the Pentagon document leak. We're recording the episode today on... April 14th, 2023. So, of course, this is pretty, uh, you know, breaking news, really. Um, what are your thoughts on the Pentagon document leak? Well, um, it's amazing to me that exposing a war crime can get you perp walked into a black van uh, and thrown into a cell for the rest of your life. But committing a war crime can constitute re-election uh, and a very savvy retirement package. Um, you know, after you've left the White House. So whenever it comes to Texera, I think that there are a couple of details where the jury might still be out. I still want to watch this situation a little bit. Um, but whenever it comes, it comes to whistleblowing on the fact that, you know, we had 14, 14 U.S. service members uh, on the ground in Ukraine that the Pentagon was hiding from us. The American taxpayer damn well deserves to know about that. The American taxpayer deserves to know whenever our men and women in uniform uh, are in a foreign country. Uh, we had, so, so much of the aid to Ukraine, the foreign aid to Ukraine, has been given to Ukraine at the expense of the American taxpayer on, at the pretense, under the pretense, that this is a, that it's a substitute to boots on the ground, right? But it turns out the Pentagon has been lying to us for almost two years. 
about the presence of American troops on the ground. It's so no, the American taxpayer deserves to know. Um, I think that, you know, from what I can tell so far, uh, this, this individual, Jack Texera, seems to be a hero. Uh, I wish the best for him. I think that it's it's a complete injustice, from what I can tell so far, uh, that he's being uh, treated the way that he is. Uh, whenever we have U.S. presidents who are absolute war criminals, uh, who are being glorified by our media, uh, you know, looked favorably upon, for the most part, by history. So, you know, from what I can tell so far, that's really my perspective is, Hats off to him for, for really showing the American people um, at least one detail of what's been going on uh, on the ground in Ukraine with respect to the presence of American troops. And if there's something I'm missing, very important about to his revelations, I'm open to hearing it. But that seems to be my take so far is that uh, he, he's shown the American taxpayer, the American people. Uh, something very important about what's happening in Ukraine. And uh, I respect him for that. I think I, I read that it looks like the number of Ukrainians who have died compared to the Russians is eight to one. So based on this new information, it looks like Russia wow. is is doing much better in this war than the, shockingly, than the United States media has really portrayed. And that's at least what I read. You know, once again, it's new. I don't know all the details uh, in and out, but that is that is what I read. So it's very fascinating. Uh, Reed, I really appreciate your time. If anyone's listening and they're interested in following you, uh, whether on Twitter or any other social media uh, outlet, how can they do so? Uh, well, the best place to find me is either on Twitter, handle at J Reed Cooley, J-R-E-E-D-C-O-O-L-E-Y, or at Sovereign.me. I have a platform there as well where I share some of my video content. So Twitter or Sovereign.media, that's always the best place to find me. Reed, as always, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kelly. I want to thank everyone for tuning into The Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we'll have another episode out soon. 